Hello and welcome to Lecture 3A of MGI 521 Professional Communications. My name is Brenton Birchmore. We are going to have a bit of a discussion about some of the psychology behind persuasion and the buying and selling processes. Now we know that humans can be fickle creatures. Our beliefs can at some times be stubborn and fixed, but at other times malleable and easily influenced. Some people seem to constantly get pushback and find persuasion difficult, while others seem to push right on through with little to no resistance. The differences are often not just in the details or the specifics, but the general strategy that's being used, or even, in fact, what they're trying to achieve. Persuasion is a tool to achieve an outcome, a difficult outcome, and made more difficult if we are unclear on what it is we're actually trying to accomplish. So the first step, as it is with most forms of communications, is to be clear on the purpose. What are we trying to do because of our persuasion? Not just what are we trying to convince somebody of, but why are we trying to convince them of that? For example, are we looking to inform their views? Are we looking to shape their predisposition, their attitudes, their thoughts, their pattern behavior? Or are we trying to persuade something more explicit, an action, a specific decision? Are we wanting something that's particular and in the moment? What we're trying to achieve will and should fundamentally change and shape how we go about using the various tools and components of persuasion that are available to us. Now, if we take a step back and look at the vectors of change, we could describe two different directions, two different strategies involved with persuasion and selling an idea. Both involve convincing the other party to invest in something that wasn't their idea initially. So we're trying to convince them. Now, the first method is a generally emotional method. It involves uncertainty. It involves using an emotional peak to overcome the weaknesses or the challenges of an intellectual or a logical test. So we might be obfuscating the truth, distorting certain facts, using perspectives as a filter on the reality that would otherwise get in the way of the result we're looking for. This kind of conviction and persuasion is not based on logic. It's actually based on the absence of logic or the avoidance of logic by using an emotional state, using fear, uncertainty and doubt to try and trigger some kind of decision before the logical filters can kick in and do their job. So this strategy involves leveraging emotion over intellect. It could be things like a sales pitch for something that you might be persuaded to buy in the moment. Techniques designed to conjure up a powerful emotion or set of emotions and push that into the action step before the intellect can come along and haul that back. So thinking of the vectors of change, the intellect is our logic, it's our judgment based on reasoning, cause and effect. It's calculative and it tries to avoid uncertainty. In fact, when we lack an understanding, it can trigger negative emotions within us. Then there's the emotional vector, which is the pure energy. The energy we use as motivation for action. This is where we get our reasons. It's where we get our meaning and our reasons to do anything at all. And it's possible to bypass the logic and go straight into the emotional vector. But it's not sustainable. And the problem with this strategy in a professional context is that this situation generally doesn't last. Because a purely emotional strategy often doesn't pass many tests. 
Persuasion and conviction in a business context needs to pass certain tests, logical tests, needs to last beyond the moment because most professional decision-making takes a period of time, and deliberately so, so that ideas can be tested. You might be able to sell a piece of clothing based purely on emotional reasons and responses that defy logic, but we're not usually going to be able to sell a business proposal or an idea on that same basis. So it needs logic that is tested or testable. It needs an agreement on what that logic is and what it means, which means it needs an aligned understanding. So one way that we can try and steer this in the conversation is by trying to be in some kind of control over what kinds of logic is most suitably applied to these tests. By having some influence over what questions get asked. That way we can influence what answers are likely to arise from that. So therefore, we might be the ones that are asking the right questions, triggering the right questions. We therefore need to be promoting the asking of questions, ones that we are influencing. But what happens if we don't really ask a lot of questions? We simply tell them what the logic is. We simply broadcast it and say, this is what makes sense. Well, then the tests tend to be more scrupulous, more rigorous. Presented logic, which does not originate from the person we're trying to convince, is very different from determined logic that they have determined from themselves, what they have discovered or believed to be true. If it's our logic, it's not necessarily pure and obvious. It needs more testing, so they will test it more. But if it's logic that's been revealed by them or determined by them, then within their mind, it's more pure. Pure being less tainted by its origin, because the origin of that logic is from within their own mind. It's discovered logic, and therefore it needs less additional testing. This is why sometimes selling an idea often means not selling it at all. It means allowing the other person to buy into it, to discover its worth and its value by themselves to discover its relevance. We can do this by not only allowing, but encouraging questions and using questions instead of statements. Questions that we already know how they will be answered and how that answer will influence the decision. This is the fundamental of the spin principles that we're going to cover in a later discussion. But first, let's look at some of the different forms of reasoning that humans often apply when they're considering these logical tests of something that someone is trying to convince them of. Now we can rely upon and use things like inductive reasoning, where we might draw together aligned logic to then point to and reach a particular conclusion. This is like a generalization towards a particular conclusion. We might recite a bunch of facts that all taken together can be implied to mean a certain thing. An advantage is that each piece of this logic, each fact, can have external credibility. But it's the reasoning that our audience is actually buying into. It's the logic of converting these facts into a particular generalized meaning. Now, if this passes the sensibility test, the feasibility tests, then they may accept that induced logic as a valid conclusion. But the main test that these external facts need to have is relevance, contextual relevance, to the point that we're trying to make, 
and relevance to each other. They need to be sufficiently aligned that they can all contribute equally. Now, this kind of cause and effect reasoning is not usually the purpose of what we're trying to convince people of, but it may be an underpinning requirement for the next logical steps that must follow or build upon that platform of aligned understanding. So we can have and use large-scale deductive reasoning based on a major premise, and that relies upon the assumed legitimacy of that major premise. Now, people often skim past that first logic step or logical test of the major premise, if it's something they've heard before or something that doesn't sound immediately wrong or problematic, they can move on to the next stages of logic, having made the assumption that the initial major premise is sound. But if it's inherently not sound, if it's fundamentally flawed, then a later reanalysis of that may undermine the entire argument we're trying to make. So we still need to make sure that the major premise we're working with is effective, is appropriate, and is legitimate. So from the major premise, we can draw subsequently narrower and narrower conclusions, which can bring it all the way down to the specifics that might be relevant in the particular decision that we are trying to influence. And in most cases, the further we get down that logic train, the more rigorous the logic tests are going to be applied to it by the audience we're trying to influence. Because the more it becomes closer and closer to what's relevant to them, the more scrutiny they will apply to the logic that we are trying to convince them of or to show them. It's true that many fallacies arrive from that failure of that initial major premise, which, when later detected, undermines the entire conclusion. Not only the conclusion, it undermines us as a legitimate source of influence. So another way we can make comparisons is to use analogies. Analogies can be used to suggest that logic A might work or apply in situation B. One of the challenges with all forms of reasoning, though, is the context changes. Not everyone agrees with the details or with the alignment of those details. Not everyone will agree that situation A and situation B are sufficiently similar. So we need to be ready to help draw those comparisons and show that alignment for any analogy between those two situations to be logically applicable. Now, a trap with using the analogy method is that sometimes we can get caught up in the arguments of convincing people that situation A and B are sufficiently aligned. Whereas what we really want to talk about is what conclusions we can draw from the assumed alignment, we might get sidetracked and undermined, caught up in trying to convince people, first of all, that these two situations are sufficiently similar, that the analogy is actually useful. So once again, we're caught by the need to make sure that the fundamentals of what we're trying to work with as logical tools must be sound. Sometimes the role of story here is useful to help create and translate a context. People can perhaps more easily believe the logic of an event if they embrace it and hear it in a story format. Now, another and more generic effective technique can be the role of cognitive dissonance, or the stress created by opposing ideas that are sitting within a person's mind. People like to resolve that internal conflict 
and move themselves to a less stressful understanding. This is part of what underpins elements of spin. Lastly, let's consider what the research tells us about the science of persuasion. Reciprocity, for example, is where others like to emulate and do as to us as we do to them. So how does this work in persuasion? Well, if we want people to listen and to learn what we have to share, we want them to have open hearts and minds, maybe we need to demonstrate and offer that first. Maybe we tell a story of how we've changed, of being convinced, of us learning showing that we are willing to embrace new ideas, to be influenced, to learn something, and to change our views, encourages them to consider doing something similar. The second principle of scarcity. Well, usually the most important asset we are consuming is time. Everything has an opportunity cost, especially in the time that it will take. Delay typically has costs and may have wastage. We can often speed up and reduce the amount of logical tests that are applied by using time as a scarce resource that we are consuming with this analysis. The next being authority, this is about us being knowledgeable. Now this can be hard to fake it, especially when we're relying upon sound logic. But when we do have credibility, we might need to show and remind people where that comes from. Have we done certain research? Have we invested time? Do we have access to particular information? Have we done an analysis of that information? Our credibility must be meaningful to the purpose, the context, and to the audience of what we're trying to achieve and who we're trying to convince. Mutual discovery is another authenticity and authority trick that we can work with. We can say, like, we'll figure it out together, even when we already know what the outcome and answers should be. Credibility can come from the idea that we are not locked into a particular answer, and that the answer that is found is a shared answer, owned by us and them. Thus, they then have a stake in the credibility of the answers that are found. The principle of consistency. Well, we start small and start easy. We get people to agree upon the obvious. Start with the simplest things, the simple, inarguable facts. This then becomes a slippery slope. We move forwards from there because once we get a alignment, that alignment has a certain momentum. And the logic path that we're going along becomes self-fulfilling. Other people that we might be trying to influence begin working to protect the logical pathway that they've begun rather than to try and thwart or divert that logic. The next point on likability, well, in persuasion, we're often starting with the premise of conflicting or maybe even combative ideas. But most people that we are trying to influence will be thinking about what's in it for them. What's in it for me? The WIFM concept. So maybe we need to tell them what's in it for them. Put their concerns at the top. Make it about their needs. Make it less about us needing to accomplish something and therefore we need to convince them. Highlight where they have a stake in this outcome and where their interests might be best served by considering and making a decision. And then ask them to consider a particular decision. This is where we encourage relevance and context. We can also build them up. The people we're trying to influence are often inherently clever people who will make up their own minds. And interestingly, if we tell them that, if we remind them that they are clever people who will make up their own minds, they are in fact more likely to agree with us, not only on that fact, but on what we say next.
We can be familiar by being similar. People like those who are like them. So we need to look for and find real alignment. If it's a small, intimate setting, it might be a simple thing as sharing some personal information about each other, getting to know each other a little better. Being more familiar means being more likable. And the last point is about consensus. We do as others do. It is a natural human trait. And sometimes there is a benefit in revealing what others do. Not in the context of being pressure or expectation, but as simply a relevant and informative fact. We keep those things in neutral, because if they start to sound like they're an expectation to say, well, everyone else is doing this, you should too, this will often create a possible negative pushback. But as a useful anecdotal piece of information, it will have a subconscious effect. This is an example of the power of reviews of product. What others think matters to us. And we will look at those reviews and allow it to influence our opinions. This is where, in an audience we're trying to convince, we might often get the question of, well, has anyone else done this? What, what do the others think of this? We need to be ready for that question. In fact, we need to be ready for all of the questions because it's the questions that are the ultimate test of the logic that we are trying to follow. We cannot be afraid of them. And where possible, we should shape them, create them, and be proud of them because they might be our best allies. This is the end of Lecture 3A. Hello and welcome to Lecture 3B of MGI 521 Professional Communications. It's Brenton Birchmore here and this discussion explores a specific tool that's used in the commercial world for obtaining buy-in and selling, referred to as SPIN selling. Now SPIN is a technique, it's an acronym, but it's a technique that follows the principles and the philosophy of solution selling merged with the psychology of human logic, influence and persuasion techniques. SPIN was devised by Neil Rackham from the Huthwaite Institute. And a bit like solution selling, it was devised by studying the most successful salespeople in the world's largest organisations to understand the processes and techniques that they instinctively used in order to achieve success and get buy-in from their audience. This was then converted into a sequence and a formula to distill a summary of how the best of the best sell their ideas to other people. Now, SPIN works on the basis that the best way to persuade people in a professional environment or in business is not to tell them a truth that you want them to believe, but to help them discover it for themselves, because then they own it. It's their idea, and they're less likely to refute their own idea. So SPIN is therefore a sequence of questions aimed at carrying the audience on a journey of understanding and alignment. A very specific sequence of questions that follow a logical flow that work within the psychology of the human mind. So SPIN is therefore a formula for interaction that works for both sides of the equation. And whilst it uses the fundamentals of how humans are convinced, it still needs the concepts of the solution-selling principles to underpin it, which is to say that 
It's the solution that is the key to the puzzle. It's about understanding the perspective of those whom we wish to influence and lead them to share our views and most importantly, let them self-discover the answers that we want them to realize rather than just trying to give it to them and then convincing them that we are right. But although it was invented as a business-to-business sales technique, it's very useful in any situation where we want to get buy-in for our ideas in any context. But it's not meant for the quick situations. It's not meant for the five-minute chat. Spin is a technique that is often used over a series of discussions or lengthy discussions. It's often aligned with the kinds of things that we might also be creating presentations for or proposals. And they're often for things at a similar scale as that. But we might think that if the discussion that we think will take more than 20 minutes to convince someone of something, then maybe that's enough of an investment that we should be using at least a cut-down version of the spin techniques. Now, there are four stages to the buy-in logic process of spin. And they're intended to work from the easiest stages down to the hardest and most difficult. And each stage helps set the scene and prepare our audience for what they need to go through intellectually and psychologically at each subsequent stage. And it uses questions because questions are less threatening. Questions aren't as rigorously tested. Questions are free to be answered. But by controlling the questions, we can still control the nature of the discussion. So we begin with situation questions. And these are questions that set the parameters of the discussion. They set the boundaries and define what our audience should be thinking about, but also, therefore, what they should not be thinking about. Situation questions focus on a factual understanding of what it is we're talking about. What are we dealing with here? What is the situation? How many of this do we actually have? What are the numbers? What are the facts? What are the relevant components that simply describe the situation? Not, not try and grade it. We're not trying to apply a judgment. We're simply describing the situation in factual terms. This gives us a context and a frame of reference for all of the more interpretive questions and answers that are yet to come. Now, these kinds of questions are often not very interesting for many people in our, in our audience, people we're trying to convince. They may know the answers, but we want to try and avoid it from being too boring. We might do our research first. We might ask around. We might try to find out. We should know most of the answers to this in advance. And therefore, we're showing that we are aligned, but also showing that we are interested in those relevant facts. We're not trying to skim over them or hide them or obfuscate them or try to make those facts less relevant. We're working with them and we're giving respect to the situation as it truthfully is now. And by making it a question, we're showing that we're open to learning and working with the truth of the situation as our audience agrees for it to be. This also begins the feelings of alignment and agreement. If they can agree with us that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then they're halfway to agreeing with us on the answer of pi. This is also an opportunity for us to show that we have a bit of beginning knowledge. We have a bit of an understanding. We have some useful information. We can confirm that we have the foundation of a suitable alignment. It helps build our credibility. But it can also be useful to perhaps fill some gaps in our knowledge. We don't want to dumb this down or 
ridicule this. We want to let them answer. We actually might learn a thing or two that we didn't know, but what is actually relevant. So once we've established, agreed and aligned on exactly what the situation is, now we can talk about problem questions. These are the kinds of questions that unlock the nature of the pain that is relevant to what we want to talk about later. This is the need or the problem. And these questions are often raw and uncomplicated. But if we're talking to an audience, we're usually talking about their pain. We're not talking about our pain. It's not about us. It's about theirs and uncovering their implied need. Because an implied need is a statement of the pain that we want to end, the thing that we don't want to have to put up with anymore. So this is not so much about just confirming our assumptions about what their pain is. We need to ask and listen and learn. So we're not asking leading questions like saying, well, this is really bad for you, isn't it? Well, we will lose credibility if we push them down a narrow path because it doesn't come across as someone who really wants to know. We need to give them the power to say, well, this is how it really is for me. Don't tell me how I feel about this. Don't tell me what my perspective is. We have to be open and let them tell it in their own way. We also don't want to simply sound like we're going through the motions only to justify our existing beliefs. We have to be willing to learn something new. Now, some people in our audience that we might talk to might enjoy this. They might like to get stuff off their chest to unload their pain and their concerns. So we listen carefully, and when they're in the midst of sharing, we don't interrupt. Don't take them off a different track. Let them get it all out. You never know. It might lead to something that's equally useful that you didn't necessarily know, but is helpful in your later attempts to convince them of things. And if it goes on too long, well, we might only interrupt with other kinds of questions. But we're only really wanting to know about the problems that are most relevant to what our original goals and agenda might be, our original purpose for beginning this conversation in the first place. So we use those kinds of questions to gently lead the conversation to the contextually aligned things we want to cover. We have to remember also that sometimes our audience hasn't really thought this hard about their pain before. They're often quite removed from it. Now, if the audience that we are trying to influence is not the one who's feeling the pain, it's still their interpretation of the pain that we have to respect. It's their perspective of the pain. So we don't want to be necessarily trying to push our perspective of the pain onto them. What we might need to do is to have somebody else present who is the victim of the pain, ask them the questions, let them express it in their own way, and have our intended audience that we're trying to influence also present, listening to those answers, so that they can then form their own reaction, their own opinion, their own perspective of that pain as expressed by the person who's feeling it. Now, often this phase can be a bit of a revelation to some people. They might discover by finally thinking about it some kind of pain that they didn't know they had or weren't fully aware of. It could be a shock, it could be a bit of a discovery, and we should allow and encourage this. But we don't want to push for pain that isn't really there. If it's not really there, they're not going to acknowledge it, and they're not going to allow that to influence, even if we want them to, if it's not real, it's not going to work. So we shouldn't try and create it out of nothing. We will get pushback and it'll damage our credibility if we try. Occasionally, we can get a kind of pushback on this 
based on the fact that people don't like admitting to pain because they feel a sense of weakness or their sense of failure for being in that situation in the first place. They might push back temporarily, and it usually is temporarily. It's based on a reaction from their ego or their pride that says, I really shouldn't be having this pain, I don't want to talk about it. Let it go. Usually, their awareness of the pain has already been unlocked. We don't need to force them to admit it beyond where they're at. Once that pain's in their head, that's where it needs to be. It doesn't all need to be expressed in words. So step three, implication questions. This is where we build up the motivation to invest in some kind of change. Change has a cost. And before we're going to invest in doing anything different, we have to find a reason to do it. But this is where we convert the implied need, the fact that there's some kind of pain, into a reason to take some kind of action. The point about asking about the implications is to understand what is the cost of not solving this problem? What is the cost of not ending this pain? The true cost. This is often uncharted ground in a lot of these discussions. Not everyone really considers this. And it can be a bit of a shock. And it can be hard for some people to admit that actually it's a really expensive thing to suffer. Because usually this kind of admission is about weakness. It can create vulnerability. People know that as soon as they admit vulnerability and weakness, that there's something that they really should be doing something about, and you're getting them to admit that, that probably you're angling for something that will want them to be influenced in how you solve it. So we need to be sensitive at this point and not forceful, just like we had in the problem discussion. We really only need this cost of doing nothing to be clear in their head, even if they haven't expressed it all. But this is not about scaring people with exaggerated ideas of the cost of certain pain. It's about recognising the cost that many of us choose to overlook. Most pain that we endure costs more than we realise, and we often don't need to boost it. It is human nature for us to ignore pain as a coping mechanism. We do this every day. It is a fundamental principle of how humans operate. So bringing these things to the surface can be a little bit raw, can be a little bit difficult, but also quite powerful. Our motivation to do something different is not proportional to the pain we're suffering at the moment, but to our awareness of the cost of that pain, because that's where we can make opportunity cost comparisons. Obviously, this step works best with those who have some real accountability. Those who don't really care what the pain costs won't be as disturbed by realising it, but those who are responsible for it will be. It's also about the long-term perspective. Many implications and the costs of enduring some pain are long-term and strategic. So the exploration of this and the awareness that we want to create is often just as much about the long-term costs as it is about the short-term cost. The final phase of the spin cycle is the need payoff. And here we see the final step of where the acronym actually works. The need payoff, the final phase, is the crown on top of the process. It's here where we ask the audience to consider a vision of the solution that might solve that pain that they've talked about, which they have also decided is an expensive pain. So far, we've set the boundaries of the situation. We've got that clear and aligned. We've unlocked the implied needs via the problem questions. We've found and encouraged a motivation to invest in some kind of solution or some kind of response due to the implications and their costs. 
Now, at this final stage, we ask the questions of what if? What if these answers existed? What if we had a solution? Now here we start to use more leading questions. We probably already know the answers as we believe them to be. I mean, it's our idea that we're trying to get buy-in for after all. But the crucial part here is being able to, at some point, let our audience take over. This is where we want them to say things like, well, yes, that would be good, but it would be even better if we give them a chance to feel some sense of ownership in creating, modifying, or tailoring the solution that we might be thinking of, perhaps even in ways that we hadn't considered. Now, there can be a bit of pushback at this stage because this is the giving in stage of the process. It can feel like a submission to some people. This is why it must be, as much as possible, their idea. So if we see a bit of reluctance and pushback, we might pull back and say, well, what do you think would solve this? Let them make the demands. Then, when they're offering this to us, we can then tailor, influence, shape, create and bring ideas forward that might assist and let their ideas dominate, but then we are helping them rather than the other way around. This phase can also be a bit therapeutic and positive for some people. Talks about a brave new future with less pain in it are often positive and encouraging. But be aware that what comes out of this might alter your already brilliant idea. That's the point of this. We may evolve what we were originally hoping to influence and convince somebody of from what we've learned through this process. We might have entered it wanting to get buy-in for a particular idea that we felt worked, but by the end of it, maybe we feel that a slightly different idea would even work better. And of course, we'll grab that. So now we've uncovered their pain, which they've agreed exists. We've helped them see the true cost of not solving it, thereby increasing their motivation to take some kind of action. Then we've asked them to help devise a vision of a solution that would actually solve those problems. They've helped build it, so it's partly their idea, which means they're not going to argue with their own ideas quite as much. Now it's time to present our version of that solution, taking everything into account. We put our cards on the table. We present the idea, but we don't sell it to them. We ask them if this would help. Let them answer or reshape it. I mean, they've just told us that that's what they've wanted. They are already sold, but we didn't sell them anything. We didn't try and convince them of anything. And yet, at this stage of the process, if it's all gone well, they're asking us for our great idea. It's like magic, except it's real and it works. This is the end of Lecture 3B. Hello and welcome to Lecture 3C of MGI 521 Professional Communications. It's Brenton Birchmore here. This discussion is going to be about the finer points of persuasion when using written documentation. Now, whether we're talking about persuasion or gaining influence, it's much the same thing in this situation. Trying to influence a decision or influence an action or influence an intent by the reader. But when we think about persuasion, we often think about the non-written forms of persuasion. It's often associated with the face-to-face -face element, with the effort that we have to put into it, with things like the force of personality, the conviction and expression that we bring to those interactions. 
the try-hard activities of attempting to be persuasive that we might use in person don't usually translate very well into a written format. So we might think of it more about gaining influence through writing rather than explicitly trying to be persuasive. Because in the written format, it's not about pushing them down a path or showing an obvious direction. We have to invite them to follow us on a journey and a message and an understanding that we hope they will follow along with us. But whatever we put into this document, they will choose to follow whatever path they want to follow. We might have a fantastic structure, a message that flows beautifully from paragraph to paragraph, but they can choose how they read it. And this makes it significantly more complicated and tricky to make a persuasive document. Now, it's been said that persuasion occurs at the intersection between need and capability. It's a comparison that's being made, comparing the capability of an answer to meet the need as it is understood. Now, sometimes in a written document, we need to bring clarity to the answer that's being proposed. Sometimes we need to bring clarity to the need that's being defined. And sometimes we need to bring a bit of clarity to both to enable an effective comparison. And it is that comparison that we are trying to influence. That's the decision that we're aiming for. But influence needs a reason. It needs an anchor for it to exist. And we need to be clear and remain clear throughout authoring whatever it is we're going to write about what it is we're trying to influence. It's usually in a business or professional context, it's usually a decision, but it could be an intent for a decision. So one of the ways that we can think about creating a document that's intended to be influential is to have a structure now, there are some authors who have written about how to create proposals that talk about something called a themes. The themes, which is actually an acronym, although it translates effectively into a word that describes what it's all about. But the theme acronym stands for the highlighted essential message that expresses my story. The highlighted essential message that expresses the story. So this is about cutting to the chase. It's about getting to the, to the heart of the problem. It's about having a message that has essential components and important ingredients that we need to highlight. So highlighting the essential message. But the message is just the tool. It's the story that ultimately carries the influence. The story is around the influence that we want to have. Because everything that we're doing with the document is just components and tools that are used to express that story. Because we're not telling them what to do. We're telling them of ourselves. We're telling them of our ideas, of our understanding, of our perspective. And we're inviting, encouraging them to subscribe to that. We're saying, join me in this train of thought. So our message needs to focus on the essential information. It's not the fluff or the extra stuff. We're just sticking to the important components of the message. Directly, simple, aligned message. The important stuff. But the message has to focus on its core ingredients, which comes from its purpose. Everything that we write down, every word, every sentence, 
is merely a tool. But a document that's intended to influence, it's not really about the content. It's not about all of the words. It's about the results that that achieves at the end. It's about what happens after that has been read. So the words we use, it's not about quantity. It's not about saying lots of stuff. It's about the quality of the words and how that converts into a message. So the words are just there to express the message adequately and effectively so that the message can be understood because it's the message that's going to have an impact on the reader that will ultimately shape the story that they believe in. So our message is something we need to plan. We plan for the outcomes that we want from this message. We plan for the influence that we want it to achieve. And we plan it so that we know exactly what does need to be in the message and we can discard everything else. We plan for how the intersection between need and capability needs to be expressed and resolved by us from our point of view, which we encourage the reader to subscribe to. But we must plan for the reader themselves. We must plan for their understanding, their perspective. It must be relevant to them. It must be of interest to them. It's really all about them. It's not about us. It's not even really about our ideas. It's not about our cleverness. It's about the change that they will undergo after they've read our message and absorbed our story. And it's about how we might be able to influence their decisions about how they will change. And that's where the relevance needs to be connected to what they are going to undergo once they make all of the decisions that will be affected by this document. Because when it's meaningful to them as the author, their mind opens up and they begin to invest in the bits of the message that they can see is about them. They have a stake in those things. And they're more open and more interested in reading about those things. It's their decision, it's their changes, and it's their consequences. Now, we've spoken before about barriers to understanding. And here we're using the same ideas to talk about barriers to persuasion. They are largely the same thing. And this firstly refers to anything which causes confusion or distraction. Anything which encourages the reader to go off on a tangent, to let their mind wander elsewhere. These are things we should avoid. Things that are unclear, unnecessarily unclear. Things that are misaligned. Things that might create an argument or a reaction in the reader. Where these are unnecessary, we need to remove them and avoid them. Because persuading someone with a written document is not about adding clever statements. It's about removing or avoiding confusing ones. They're going to think about certain things. It's usually more important and more difficult to take away all the things that we don't want them to think about and all that's left is what they're already going to think about. So by adding more things, by embellishing, by complicating our story, we might create tangents which allow or encourage their mind to wander off into other directions, thinking about other things that isn't really what we want them to be focusing on. So to turn this around, what we really want to achieve is we want to ensure the reader's focus on our message. We want to ensure their acceptance of our message and ultimately their alignment with our story. Let's talk about these three things one at a time. When we talk about the focus, we don't want to ask the reader 
We don't want to ask their mind to work any harder than it needs to. So we want to be concise. We want to be clear. We don't want to say anything that we don't need to say. This isn't a chance to show off our vocabulary. The more that they have to think about in trying to understand what we mean, the less they will be able to think about what it means to them. The less they will be able to mentally process whether or not they can accept it if they're still trying to figure out what it is we really meant. An example would be to avoid double negatives. So if something's good, we should just say it's good. But if we say it's not bad, well, think of the mental effort, as subtle and as subconscious as it may be, the mental effort required to process the phrase of, that's not bad. First, the brain has to understand the meaning of the word bad and make a decision around that. And then they have to get their head around the fact that we don't mean bad, we mean the opposite of bad because we put this other word in front of it. So then they have to think, well, what does that mean? What, what's, oh, that means good, right? Well, maybe we should just say that. And there's a whole range of possibilities that occur in the vocabulary and the word structure that we use where we can simplify the message we want to give. It's already challenging enough when we realise that people don't think in straight lines. Our thoughts are generally tangential. It's easy for us to think in other directions. Reading encourages and in some ways requires a linear processing of facts and information. And the more we can keep that focused and the less we give the reader opportunities to think elsewhere, the easier it will be for them to absorb and understand our message. The second point is acceptance. Now generally, with a written document, we don't want to tell them how to think. We don't want to tell them what to do. But what we might want to tell them is how we think. The fundamental here is we want to avoid unnecessary arguments in the mind of the reader. Everything we give them to react to is something that might deflect their thoughts and their journey through absorbing our message. And the harder it is for them to accept our message, the more likely it is that they are going to mentally invest in counter-logic in that moment as they read. A part of their brain will be distracted by thinking about the arguments against that which we've just said. And the more they mentally invest some part of their thought in that counter-logic or counter-argument, the less open they will be to getting the influence and getting the details of the rest of our message. Even though they've continued reading, some little part of their brain is still mentally thinking about that thing that they didn't like, didn't react well to, couldn't accept. Now, sometimes that's an essential part of our message. It's what we want to do. But it should only exist when it is what we want to do. And we should avoid it when it isn't or doesn't need to be. So maybe we should avoid being ambiguous. We should be clear. We should minimize contentious language or contentious statements. We should avoid threatening statements. We should avoid demeaning or degrading statements. And we should qualify the statements that we're working with. The more contentious, threatening, demeaning, the more that the reader has a reason to react emotionally to what we've said, the more they lose focus on what we actually want them to be thinking about. The irony, of course, is that the more we usually try to persuade people by inserting those contentious emotionally triggering statements, the less persuasive and the less influential we usually become with our written word. So 
we usually don't want to dramatize. Our credibility comes from saying just enough, but adding drama, adding unnecessary drama, gives the implication, perhaps even subconsciously, that the simple facts of the matter are not alone enough for us to be persuasive. So if we, the author, have felt the need to embellish, to exaggerate, to dramatize, then that implies we don't have enough faith in the raw facts to do their job. So if we doubt the facts and need to add something on top, well, wouldn't the reader feel that maybe they should doubt the facts as well? So if we respect their independence of thought, they will use it to consider what we say. If we disrespect their independence of thought, they will use it to prove that we are wrong, even if it's only in the echo chamber of their own mind. The third point, relevance. It has to matter to them. And not through obvious simple statement, but perhaps we need to show them how and why it matters to them. Don't tell them that it should, but show them the connections that describe how it matters to them. Stick to the things that clearly matter to them and allow that to be visible throughout the document. So what else might we consider if we're trying to write a document that's meant to influence? If we're going to persuade throughout the document, there needs to be a flow and a journey of transformation. There needs to be the story. And that transformation is usually one of discovery by the reader. And every journey is unique to that reader. Every person will read and have a different journey as they go through that discovery and understanding. But this can also come from how well we can predict their responses, point by point, as we make them. As we express the idea, if we can predict the way in which they might respond, the way in which we will trigger their curiosity, that might mean that we can follow certain statements with explanation, with justification, with rationalization or answers that naturally follow the logical and obvious questions that will be derived from the things that we've stated. Perhaps we can predict and answer those key questions. Now, if we don't do this, if we create a lot of questions in their mind and we don't answer them in the contextual moment, as in the next paragraph, then part of their mind will be focused on the question and less of it will be focused on reading whatever we've said next which is presumably what we'd really want them to be thinking about. So sometimes it's worth answering the key questions immediately after we've raised them or drawn attention to them. Now, we can't do this all of the time. Usually our document would be too full if we answered every question. We need to decide what is most important to the theme of our document, the essential message. We might, as part of this, use qualified statements. There's a difference between qualified and merely conditional statements. A qualified statement sets the parameters of trust and belief that can be applied to a particular statement. An abstract conditional statement really just undermines the potential for belief and trust in the statement. I'll give you an example. We might say, if this situation is true, then in that case, the moon would appear blue. That's a qualified statement. A conditional statement might be to say, well, in some cases, the moon might look blue. But if we haven't put parameters around that, we've simply created doubt. We've simply allowed the reader to think, well, okay, 
this author doesn't know when or how it might be blue, so I don't know if they really know what they're talking about. Another point is about layout and format. When reading a document, the layout and format really does matter. We want, typically, small paragraphs. Small paragraphs get read more easily, more reliably, especially if a reader is skimming through a document. Paragraphs that have only three to four sentences are often the ideal length, because the middle points often don't get read very clearly or don't get remembered very clearly. The first sentence will be clearly understood. The last sentence will be almost as clearly understood, and the stuff in the middle will kind of get thought of a little bit. So don't bury the essential points in the middle of a paragraph. Set the context early for your points. Start with the context. Make sure that important element is early in the points that we make. And make sure that your final statement is the clarity, the clearest point that summarizes and concludes what you want them to be thinking about at the end of that point. We also want to avoid making multiple points in a single paragraph. Normally, one paragraph equals a point. A sentence equals a statement. And a page equals an idea. But we can use headings and subheadings to help give an implied structure for the reader's benefit. We break up paragraphs into sections. We don't simply want a bazillion paragraphs that go from point to point to point. We want to have subheadings that allows the reader to check against our intended flow of the message. So we can separate the different contextual elements to enable the reader to more quickly and more clearly get to the heart of what we really meant. We're trying to create a feeling of alignment in the mind of the reader, to give them a comfort that they do understand us, and without a great deal of mental effort. And that comfort in alignment and understanding us leads to a comfort in agreeing with us. It will be easier for them to agree with us if it's already been easy for them to understand us. Then we have our influence. We have persuaded and influenced the decisions and actions of that reader. And we weren't even there. This brings us to the end of Lecture 3C. Hello and welcome to Lecture 3D of MGI 521 Professional Communications. My name is Brenton Birchmore and this discussion will look at how to effectively structure a business proposal document. So firstly, what is a business proposal? What do we mean by this? Well, generically, it's a written statement of a need and a plan for how to fill that need. It might be a solution to a problem, but the problem must be stated and then how that solution will solve that problem. It's usually something that would be beneficial for the decision maker, at least in our opinion, whom we would normally assume to be the reader. So a proposal is more than just a suggestion. It's actually a document that's trying to influence the reader, to influence decision makers. That's its core purpose, which is quite different from a report or an analysis, which might be the kind of document that neutrally puts forward some possible ways to solve a problem, but without necessarily promoting or prompting any particular one of them. A proposal is picking an answer and presenting it. So a proposal has intention. Its purpose is to influence and deliver that outcome. And its message is usually something new or something original. So 
A proposal often needs to educate its audience as well. It needs to inform the reader about things that they may not currently be totally aware of, but it also needs to motivate them, to encourage them to take action. It's more than simply helping them make a decision. It needs to prompt a desire to act upon that decision, which means it needs to remove as many obstacles to action as it can. So if we're thinking about the three vectors of change, a proposal needs to provide an intellectual change in what the reader learns through reading the proposal. It needs to create an emotional change in how they feel about the subject matter being presented in the proposal. And it needs to create a motivational change to want them to take some action about it, to make a decision, and then begin the transformation that the proposal is suggesting. Generally, for them to agree to make an investment. But it has one other important objective. In order to achieve all of that, it has to make the complex simple. This is the importance of the structure. So how we structure a document of this kind can be just as important as the language that we use, or how we might write it, or what we put into it. Within the structure, different readers of a proposal might be interested in different sections of the document. Some people will be more interested in one component than another. Therefore, our structure needs to support the individual inquiries that different audiences will look for. We need to help them find what's of interest to them. But what's of interest to them is going to be related to the questions that they generally want answered before they can decide whether or not this proposal is something that they should agree to. The proposal document is a journey for the reader. It's like a long message that is essentially a story. It's a sequence of logical progression of alignment for the reader, which takes them through point by point up until the point of influence, where it's working on their decision. And the purpose of the structure is to sequence that journey and make sure that all of the different components, the different ingredients and steps along the way are presented in the document in the right order and that they do their job in answering the questions that the decision maker is going to have. So a proposal is not merely an expression. It's not just a statement or an announcement. Throwing something out there and say, hey, this might work and seeing if it sticks. A proposal is much more targeted than that. It is a reading journey but it's more than that, because it also outlines a journey of change, of transition or transformation that the audience, the decision makers, are going to go through if they accept what we are proposing. This is because if they adopt the ideas in the proposal, typically this means that their situation will change. Activities will take place, investments will be made, and a new reality will emerge from all of this. This is change, and change has risks. And this is the transformation that your proposal needs to outline, needs to be honest and complete about. So it's not just taking them on a journey of understanding. It's helping them visualize and understand the journey of change that will ultimately result from accepting our proposal. So in doing this, we need to align with two things. Firstly, we need to align 
with the here and now, the situation as it appears to the audience, to the reader. We need to anchor our document by beginning with a clear understanding of what's going on in the present. If we can't create this alignment effectively, or we don't, the reader might think that we don't really understand them or their situation well enough. And if they don't feel that we understand their current situation very well, they won't be easily convinced that we can understand and propose a new situation that they should transition into. Secondly, it also needs to be aligned with the vision of the future that is being proposed as a result of this document, that new reality that we are suggesting. And it needs to clearly articulate that vision and help the reader capture and understand it. Otherwise, they won't know where the proposal might take them. So they're not able to judge whether or not they want to go there. Now, in discussing structure, I want to talk about the difference between the idea of slots versus sections, because they're not entirely the same thing. We're used to seeing sections in a document, the sections that might appear in the table of contents. They form a physical structure of the document, the layout of the words and paragraphs, and the headings are what tells us what's there and where it is. Slots, on the other hand, are the components of the message. They are the ingredients or the elements of the themes. Themes being the highlighted essential message that expresses the story. The core ingredients that answer the questions that the reader will have before they can agree or not agree to the proposal. Now sometimes, some of the slots and sections will line up and they will both appear in the table of contents. But not all of the slots will be that straightforward. We're going to talk more about the structure of the slots, these components of the message, because each one has a particular job to do in influencing the reader. Some of these slots are dependent upon others and might likely follow behind them. Some might stand alone and exist independently, and some might be spread out and scattered through different sections of the document. Now, there are six fundamental slots that any proposal document should include. And these are the situation slot, the objectives slot, the methods slot, qualifications, costs, and benefits. These are essentially linked to the questions that any reader, any decision maker, should be asking when considering a proposal. Questions such as, what is the situation that this proposal relates to? What are the objectives of this proposal? What methods does this proposal believe it will achieve these objectives? What qualifications does this proposal or its author have to allow us to believe and accept these facts and these statements? What costs are being proposed that should be incurred? And what are the benefits that are expected to be enjoyed if all of this takes place? Now, if we answered all of this in a single sentence, we might have something complicated by saying something like, well, this proposal is stating that these benefits are what you will receive considering these costs you will incur. And given our qualifications for performing these particular methods, you will achieve these objectives and that therefore will improve your current situation. Now, you could reword that sentence entirely. You could rearrange all those slots and it would make the same sense but in a different order and still convey the same meaning. This is what we call the baseline logic of the proposal. 
The baseline logic says that these are all of the important things that are being expressed and presented in this document. These are all of the important answers that should be given to all of the questions that should be asked. So they're essential. We can't skip or miss one of these because if we do, we will be undermining the ability of the document to influence the decision maker. We will leave questions unanswered, which at the very least would require or encourage that reader to go and dig elsewhere for their answers before they can make a decision. We want them to have as much of the answers as they can possibly get just from our proposal. So they can reach most of their conclusions by the time they've read the proposal, even if they might supplement that with other information later. If we skip on the methods, for example, the reader might be thinking that they like the benefits and it sounds cost-effective. We might sound like we know what we're talking about, situation is accurate, but maybe they don't quite see how this could be achieved because we haven't explained the methods. And this kind of problem can be talked about with any particular slot that's missing. It leaves them unconvinced, lacking some important answers. And this is true even if this proposal is perhaps arriving at the end of lengthy discussions over which we may have covered a great deal of ground and we may have talked about many things and we may believe that a lot of this information is already with the reader. It's already been shared and discussed and they might already know, it might be common knowledge. But the proposal document is the place where you summarise it, regardless of what might have been shared previously. It's got to include everything in the proposal document. Another key point is that really none of these slots exist totally in isolation. They all relate to each other. They talk to each other. And all of them gain their strength relative to each other. They're all intermixed in a way that they all influence the decision-making, perhaps not equally but they are all relevant to each other. Let's look at them in a little more detail. Firstly, the situation slot. Situation is defining our understanding of the current situation relative to whatever it is that the document is proposing. It defines our ability to understand and to express that understanding of what's true right now. And it creates alignment in the mind of the reader. When it's successful, it helps the reader to understand that we understand them. We understand their situation, and therefore we understand the starting point. It helps prepare the reader for whatever it is that they need to learn, and it contextualizes the rest of the document. It helps them understand not only what it's about, but helps them clarify what it's not about, resolving any assumptions they may have about the context. Yet it must also define the opportunity, the part of the situation that is relevant to the proposal is the need, the pain, the problem, the opportunity, whatever piece or component of the situation that we want to change. That must be articulated clearly. And the situation slot must define that because that's the essential question that it needs to answer. What's wrong with our situation that means that I need to even bother reading a proposal? Next, let's talk about the objective slot. This is describing the aim of the activity, the work, the transformation. It's what's going to happen. Now, it's linked to the situation because it's changes to the situation. It's derived from the opportunity. If you have this need, then these objectives are what you should be aiming for. They would relate 
to solving that need. They must be linked. But the objectives are a description of outcomes. They are goals, and they're usually definable and measurable. Let's talk about methods. The methods slot is the how. It's how things are going to happen. This defines the journey, the transition. How will these objectives be realised? It might include specific actions, or it might include more generic activities. But it's not just about how something is going to happen. It's not just about how the proposal will meet its objectives. It's about how the individuals will undergo their transformation. In addition, it's about why. Why this particular method? When we're proposing a method, we're saying that we should do it this particular way in contrast to other methods. So why do we choose this way rather than other ways? How are we substantiating the validity of our choice or our suggestion that this is the right method? We need to explain that in the methods discussion. Now what about the qualifications slot? This is about helping the reader understand our qualifications as an author or whatever we represent as to why they should seriously consider the value of what we are presenting in this document. Now we generally should avoid the generic cut and paste information that might be reused in various proposals of its kind. This is usually easily detected. It's not really what the qualifications is all about. It's not what it's trying to achieve. It's not a brag sheet that says I'm really clever and we're really clever and we've done clever things before. It's all about what's specific to this outcome. And it's often as much about showing that we know what we're talking about rather than stating that we know what we're talking about. And this is why this particular slot might often be included in other sections of the document. It may not necessarily be its own, but it's an ingredient that must be there. For example, a good situation slot might show our ability to understand the reader's situation quite deeply. A good discussion on objectives can show that our problem-solving capabilities and how we are able to clearly get to the heart of what's really wrong. It's a good starting point for creating confidence in our ability to fix it. In the methods discussion, we may have an opportunity to show our qualifications by demonstrating our knowledge of cause and effect of certain activities, showing why one method is better than another. Doing so means that we're demonstrating our qualification to pick and choose and make good decisions that are well-informed. This is different and much more powerful than simply listing a bunch of other stuff that we've done for other people that might suggest or imply that we know what we're talking about. So the question of qualifications is not how qualified we are in general, but how qualified we are specifically to be making this proposal and these recommendations in this context. Now what about the costs slot? What will it cost to do? Cost does have some different perspectives. Sometimes it's sales-oriented, it's transactional, there might be dollar amounts, cost of investment, costs that might appear on an invoice, and that's fairly simple. But there's usually other costs, costs for undergoing the change, hidden costs, opportunity cost. The journey of transformation that is being proposed is going to cost usually a lot more than what might appear on any invoice. Change involves pain and involves sacrifice, and these things cost. 
If we miss important costs, we lose credibility in our qualifications. We might lose influence over some of these cost obstacles if we don't talk about them and address them. So we need to be clear about what are all of the relevant costs in regards to the entire transformation, not just the price tickets. We also need to be clear about whether or not costs are specific and accurate or whether they're merely estimates or indicators. Qualify the degree of accuracy that we are able to bring. Don't assume or imply that it's more accurate than it really is. The ultimate question the reader is going to try to make is, is it worth it? Is this proposal worth the cost? And that question can only be answered if we also include the final slot, which is about benefits. Benefits are the goal. That's what we will be enjoying as a result of the transformation. It's why it's all worth it. And it's different from the objectives. The objectives are the individual outcomes. Benefits is the new reality. It's everything that's going to be better about the future. If the situation is our current reality, the benefits is the new one after the changes. Now, to get those benefits, we're going to have to do all of the things in the proposal. We're going to have to achieve some objectives, you via the methods that we've proposed. There will be some costs incurred, but the benefits are going to be worth it. This is what we want the reader to believe. So we can see that these slots are portions of our message that all work together to fill in all of the questions and the gaps in the reader's understanding so that they can fully evaluate what we are proposing. Now, in what order should we do it? Well, it depends upon the context of what's being proposed. If the reader is a little bit reluctant about why they should even bother, maybe we would start with the benefits discussion. If they already know really where they want to go and this is simply one alternative proposal, then maybe the methods are more important or simply the costs. But there's one other important structural component that we haven't talked about. It's not really a slot in that context, and that is the executive summary. Because the executive summary is all of the slots combined into the shortest possible number of words. This is the preamble, the opening statement, and its length will depend upon the length of the rest of the document and the amount that it needs to say. If the total document is only a few pages, the executive summary might be half a page or less. A large proposal document might have an executive summary that is a page or so, but more than a page is usually not recommended, and definitely two pages, bad idea. The executive summary is meant to be something that should be easily and quickly read and digested by anyone. And it captures the entirety of the baseline logic and the essential message. It's often one of the few things that actually does get read in its entirety. And some readers will only read that executive summary and the pricing section, and that's it. Other people, well, they will read certain specific sections or slots that are of particular interest to them and their stake but rarely will the entire document be read, even by a few. So the executive summary needs to articulate the entirety of the message, the answers to the questions that each slot gives in greater detail throughout the proposal document. It needs to outline what's in the rest of the document and therefore why the reader should read it. Creating a good executive summary can take half of the amount of effort that goes into the entire document. So all of the other pages get half the time and half the time just goes into creating that one-page summary at the front. It's that important 
to get it right word for word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. Because if the executive summary doesn't do its job of convincing the reader that the rest of this document is worthwhile, then no matter how good everything else is in the document, none of it will get read. This is the end of Lecture 3D.